Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and this is FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Gary Grant's toy shop business has thrived during recessions as he picked up premises abandoned by bigger retailers who were overextending themselves. He started out selling skateboards from a bike shop in Amersham, a small town outside London, and it was a sudden downturn that launched his career. In 1976-7, there was a skateboard boom in the UK. Christmas of 1979, the skateboard market collapsed. It just finished. And that's commonplace in the toy industry where crazies pick up, gets to a peak, and then it finishes because the children have moved on to something else. So um, Flex Allo Casters in Slough, they had got on board the skateboard market. They were working out how to perfect skateboard wheels. So to cut a very long story short, managing director from Flexel, they came into the shop in Amersham, wanted to sell all his remnants of wheels. My boss didn't want to buy them, so I sold the bearings from the wheels to Alpine Sports in London, who were now using them for the new skates, the quad skates that were catching on in and around Kensington and Chelsea. And the only component that was compatible between a skateboard and a pair of roller skates was the bearing. Then I spent the next two years buying and selling skateboard bits. And on my day off on Thursdays, I used to know who had stock that they wanted to sell, and I'd pre-sold it to somebody who wanted to buy it. And I used to go and pick it up in the morning, deliver it in the afternoon, and, and that's how we got going. Life went on fine, 1980, did really well. January 1981, my boss fired me at the bike shop because of, this was the era before mobile phones, so I was at work when everybody else was at work. So the only way I could communicate with people is either I rang them or they rang me and my boss felt that I should be spending more time running his shop. So we parted company. The toy shop in Amersham came on the market and it was called the Pram and Toy Bar. It had just completed its year's turnover, which was 30,000 pounds. I went to look at it and my wife and I decided we would buy this toy shop. So I then went and convinced Barclays Bank to lend me £20,000. Now, how do you do that? Because banks only lend to, it seems, people who well, don't yeah. want money. OK, well, there's a little bit missing then. Kath and I had sold our house in Hazelmere. We were buying another house in Amersham. My mortgage had become available, and now I'd lost my job. So I went and convinced Barclays Bank to lend me £20,000 secured on the house that I hadn't yet bought with the mortgage that I was getting supported by the salary that I now wasn't earning. It was one of those take-a-risk times. The first year's turnover was £100,000. The second four-year turnover was a quarter of a million. So we went from the 30000 it was doing to 100000 to a quarter of a million. What was it you were doing then? Well, first of all, we gutted the shop. The shop was called the Pram and Toy Bar. Now, in the early 80s, you might have got away with a shop called the Pram and Toy Bar, but it wasn't exactly cool with the kids. So we changed the name. We wanted the ability to change what we were selling without changing the name of the shop. So if it entertained you, if it filled your time, then I could sell it and the name of the shop wouldn't have needed to be changed. So hence the entertainer was born. 
but no. toys did work for us. So uh, 10 years after we started, Zodiac Toys, that were the largest chain of toy shops in the UK, went bust. They had 92 shops. So that left an awful lot of shopping centres with a closed-down toy shop. So the landlord in Slough allowed us to take over the Zodiac toy store because they had a void. So on the back of the institutional landlord we had in Slough, the institutional landlord, the Prue, let us open in Uxbridge because Uxbridge also had a closed Zodiac toy store. So there was a sort of snowball. Snowball. So Slough led to Uxbridge, Uxbridge led to Milton Keynes, and our sixth shop was in Camberley, and our seventh shop was the Prue, one of our institutional landlords, encouraging us to open another shop in one of their centres. And that has now been our experience over the last 20 years. If you can get a really good relationship with the landlord, every time he acquires another shopping centre, if he wants a toy shop, then he comes to talk to you. And we must have now half a dozen landlords where we have at least half a dozen shops in their different shopping centres because they know you. And the entertainer has exceeded all expectations generally in recessions. If I'm competing against other mainstream retailers, if they're literally on that chase for space, they'll pay whatever they want to pay on the rent. So in 2007, I couldn't make shops work. I thought there's something wrong with my business. What is going wrong? But by the time we got around to 2009, we realised actually there was nothing wrong with our business, but people were literally just signing up shops because they wanted to expand and some of their business model didn't work. They definitely didn't work after the recession. What theories do you have as to why you've succeeded where others failed? Firstly, I think for the entertainer, absolutely key is relationships. And our biggest asset are our people. So we can buy the right things, but if we've got the wrong people interacting with our customers, that sale could fall over. And we've got 110 of our current staff who are in what we call the 10-year club. They've worked for the company for more than 10 years. We take them out every year. We respect the, the fact they've invested their career in our business because we're a family business, so you know, it's, it's personal. And we've got, I think, six or eight staff who've worked for the company for more than 25 years. So we need to value our relationships with our customers. We need to value the relationship with our employees. And also we need to value our relationships with our partners, whether they be the bank, whether they be our insurance brokers, whether they be our landlords, our suppliers. All those relationships are really important because, particularly again in the toy industry, we're so back-ended towards Christmas. When stock's short, I want to be able to pick up the phone and say, come and help me out, you know, because if you've got the items that everybody must have, then people will come to you. There are lots of moments in business where there is risk-taking. Mm-hmm. How do you ensure you behave well? Luckily, as a family business, I haven't got shareholders that I'm having to keep on board. And if I think back of some of the major international company collapses, they've mainly collapsed because executives have been expected to over-deliver. They've been given a mandate which is just not reasonable. But if shareholders are only interested in a one-way projection then it's a very brave senior executive who puts his hand up to say, this is completely unreasonable, I'm not prepared to go along with this particular policy or whatever it happened to be, I'm out. At the end of the day, I am accountable for how I let my business operate. And I want to run my business in an ethical way. But also, I think the added pressure and responsibility that I have, and also my two sons are in the business, is that over 1,500 people are reliant on their salaries every month. And that was the biggest pressure for me in 2008, when the world was literally imploding financially and our business in October fell by 30% almost in a week. 
when there was such a, a vacuum of confidence, nobody knew whether their company that working was going to survive, whether their bank was going to be in business at the end of the week. People literally just battened down the hatches. Yeah. And that was a huge amount of pressure. And I wouldn't want to go through that again. That would be the worst six months in 35 years I've been in business. Is there any advice or things you did and you look back and you go, I'm glad I did that? We held firm to what we believed was right. I knew I could pay everybody. I knew I could sort my end of the year accounts out. I knew I could pay the VAT bill at the end of January. What worried me most was, would the bank finance me the following year? Because we're such a seasonal business, we rely on bank finance for the last half of the year. And that was the one niggling, like a toothache, as it were, all the time. What about next year? What about next year? What about next year? Because I knew this year was good. And then the government did some things and they enabled people to pay their VAT bills over 12 months. The other thing that was absolutely amazing, and again, credit to most of our landlords, that was a time when the lion's share of our landlords allowed us to move to monthly payments for our rent. Those two things that smoothing out of rents, which is logical. You know, how many bills do you pay three months in advance? <laughs> it's normally a month in arrears. And obviously the VAT. So there were a number of things that got us through 2009. That was a year of stability for the entertainer. Get us back on our feet. Wars had closed. There was a huge opportunity in the marketplace because we had 42 shops then. And of those 42 shops, I think it was 35. You could see Wars from the front door of our shops. So our biggest seller of toys in the UK, I could see from my front door. They came out the market, so we actually had a great trading year, 2009. And then 2010 to today, that's when our major expansion has started. So we've opened about 80 shops in five years. You describe yourself as an ethical business. Can you explain what you mean by that? We have a whole number of values. Honesty is a given. So we don't need to have honesty as a value. So we'll have a value like enthusiasm. We would have a value, a contentious value, but we have a value called demanding. So demanding, Gary, so are you demanding of all your staff? Yes, we are. But we encourage our staff to be demanding of us. And then we have these values, which we describe as the playground. Okay. And these are the ones, these are the ones on the around wall. us on yeah. the wall and pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So not all tantrums are avoidable. You know, I love this one. It's the wonder of childhood is a right, it's not a privilege. So the way we describe these as the playground, it's the atmosphere in which we operate our business. So when you go into an entertainer, I would expect these statements on the wall to be living and active in our shops. I was in a Liverpool shop last Tuesday and a member of staff came up, she said, Gary, said, I really want to thank you for the opportunity you've given me. I didn't know her, so I said, well, you have to yeah. tell me. She said, I started here three years ago. I was on a work placement from the job centre. Then you gave me a Christmas job. Then I became full-time, and today I'm on the AIM Hire Assistant Managers Programme. Now, we've changed this young lady's life. We've given an opportunity because she didn't need a bag full of qualifications to come and work for us. And maybe nobody else believed in her, but we gave her an opportunity and she grabbed it with both hands. And um, it's that much fun working in a toy shop? Apparently so. I think it is. Nick Epley teaches behavioural science at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I asked him why ethics matter in the business of making money. Most businesses deal with other people. They focus on relationships. You have relationships with customers, clients, your boss, your subordinates, you have people in your organization. And turns out in lots of ways, people like being treated well and dislike being treated poorly. 
So a company that behaves ethically is one that treats its customers fairly, has integrity within the organization, treats its clients with respect, and it's very easy to make a business case for why those activities are essential for creating a long-term sustainable business. At the moment, we have an ethical debate about a lot of new startups that are called part of the gig economy or sharing economy. The employees don't get any workers' rights. Some of these companies are growing very fast. Well, let's think about a company like Uber. The way I would think about this, you've got both short-term and long-term concerns that you're thinking about. In the short term, it can be that having workers who aren't paid in a way that they're happy with, that doesn't build some loyalty to the company, that that's sort of irrelevant to profit in the short term. But in the long term, that's a hard business to make sustainable unless you're constantly able to replace workers who are turning over because they don't like their jobs. So the PR backlash is one thing. But I think from a business operation perspective, as a leader of an organization like that, if you're running that as the CEO or a senior executive, what you need to think about is how are we going to create an organization that's sustainable for the long term? So a good comparison point, and a compelling alternative is a different startup company that was a startup in the early 1970s, and that was Southwest Airlines in the United States. They've since become the largest domestic carrier in the United States, a massive company. From the very beginning, they had a very different kind of approach, one that values employees early on when they had some difficulty, and they were pushed to lay off some employees. They resisted that because they thought it would be bad for their commitment to their employees and would undermine their employees' motivation in the organization. So they kept this extra plane, asked their employees to work more, gave them profit sharing. And what you've seen in a company like Southwest, I think, is a company with really positive labor relations within that organization that's proven sustainable over the long term. So when we think about ethics in an organization, in the short term, ethical behavior may not pay in creating business performance. In the long run, because you're building more successful relationships, employees are more motivated and excited to work for your company, it's likely to create a more sustainable company. Gary is a Christian who says his religious beliefs have influenced his business strategy, including deciding not to open on a Sunday. But perhaps the best insight into what motivates him comes from this anecdote. I remember my toy shop as a child. I remember exactly who it was. My parents were divorced when I was young. My father lived in Wembley. We went to see him every month and dad used to take us to the toy shop. My best toy shop was, I don't even know the name of it, was an independent toy shop in one of the roads off Wembley High Road and I knew exactly where the corgi box cars were. You know, where you lifted off the lid and all the stuff was in there and, and dad spoiled us. But that was the magic of an Aladdin's cave of a toy shop. And that, for many of us, conjures up an image in our head. If I said to a six-year-old today, when they're 26, in 20 years' time, you know, what's your image of a toy shop? I say, toy shop? Well, when I was young, the brown box came through the letterbox. Well, if that's the way in which the next generation are going to remember toys, then for an industry that's got such fantastic product, we've completely missed it. So I want children to come into our stores. I want them to be in a safe environment to be able to run around, pick things up, put things down. Of course the parents need to bring them in, but when a child has been dragged around every other shop in the shop and they didn't want to go to, the treat is, we'll take you to the toy shop. And when we get there, we definitely want it to be a treat. Next time, we'll be looking at how to find backers when you have a great idea, but no customers. We'll be talking to a Portuguese founder who had to go to the US to find backers who understood his idea. Meanwhile, you can catch up on previous episodes by going to our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. Until then, 
goodbye and thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.